Hey everyone, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for faith and life. I'm Tony, and today is episode 85 of the podcast. I get to sit down with pastor, poet, father, and husband, Lo Alleman. Now, Lo has a new book out that's different than most you're going to read this year. His book, We Sang a Dirge, is really about poems and laments about the black community and the hope of the gospel. Wow. When I tell you that this is one of those conversations that you just need to listen to and process the words that he's saying, and honestly, pick up a copy of his book and begin to look at the processing, the emotional processing that he does in this writing. Now, I'm going to warn you, in our conversation today, we get real, honest. We get um, very clear about some things. He shares with me a poem that really uh, struck a chord, and it's all about the N-word and what that means and what it looks like. So, um, you know, if you generally listen to this podcast with your kids, you might want to just be forewarned. There is some language that you may not be ready to explain, Uh, but then again, maybe we need to. So, uh, thank you so much for listening. If you can, please leave a rating or review. We're still working our way to 100 reviews by the end of the year. Uh, we need all of your help in order to do it. I appreciate all of you so much. Anytime that you you do leave a rating or review, my team reads all of them. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Lo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited today to have author, poet, speaker, and discipleship community leader, Lo Alleman. Lo, thank you so much for being here today. Tony, you have said my name, my last name better than anybody else so far. So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I will be honest. I cheated and I looked at the way you said it on YouTube as many times as possible. Come on. <laughs> Come on. That's the way to go. <laughs> uh, so speaking of YouTube, you're, you're, um, you're kind of viral famous, right? You're, you're YouTube video famous because of a wedding, mm-hmm. your wedding. Uh, can you tell us what happened and where everybody should go to check it out? Even though I know it's super <laughs> weird, but it's such a great video. Come on. Uh, it's weird. It's like the weirdest thing in the world. Um, so I got married to this really awesome chick named Erica. She's fantastic. Um, been my best friend for a long time. We met in the seventh grade. She's the homie. And yeah, we. she told me um, that she wanted one thing for the wedding. She wanted me to write a poem. Uh, and say it for her as she was walking down the aisle. My initial thought was that we were going to do like like poetry and like the wedding vows. Yeah, like, yeah. A rap battle um, of sorts for the wedding vows. She, did, she didn't like that idea as much. That um, probably would not have gone the same kind of viral anyway. So she wants the poem uh, as she walks down the aisle. I say, yeah, I write it, say a bunch of things that I feel, all the good stuff. She has an aunt who says that she can't make it. And so her aunt was like, would you mind if I send some random person from my church to your wedding to record this for me? And we were like, sure, we don't care. We're going to get married. What else do you? She sends this guy. He records it. I spit bars at my wife as she walks down the aisle. We get married. We go off to our honeymoon. Things are great. We are so unconnected with anything that happens afterwards. Love it. We are on our honeymoon and my mom is blowing my phone up. Like she's calling nonstop. And I'm like, I'm kind of preoccupied. Having a honeymoon. Uh, where'd you wait? Where'd you honeymoon at? We were in Puerto Rico. Oh, come on with it. Yeah, man. I it was so it. cool in December. And so it was like we got away from like the weird Mississippi Christmas. Um mm. got away from, like, weird Mississippi winter, if it's not really a thing. 
Um, but we were in Puerto Rico and it was just beautiful weather. We had fun. It was a gift. So it was, it was all cool. So we're there. My mom's blowing my phone up. I answer. And I'm like, what's up? Like, what do, you, what do you need? And she was like, you need to get on YouTube right now. You're going viral. And I'm like, mom, you don't know what viral is. And I hang up the phone. Um, <laughs> I get back on there. And I think at the time we, when we first checked it out, it was like 2 million views. Wow. Um, and a couple thousand reposts. Uh, eventually culminated to be like 17 million across platforms and different celebrities are sharing it. And people are messaging us from like the Philippines and the UK and different parts of South Africa. And we're like, Oh my gosh, we love your weddings, blah, 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 blah. blah. And it was weird. Like the messages that we were getting, like people were telling us stuff about their, their marriage is falling apart or stuff about, you know, uh, what they mm-hmm. hope to find in a spouse. And it created a really interesting opportunity to, have dialogue with people and, and feedback. And um, that was cool. But from that point on, there was an assumption that like, oh, you're like YouTube famous. I quickly found out YouTube famous and going viral are not the same thing. Oh, <laughs> they're vastly different things. You like there, there are cats that have gone viral um, and it does not change uh, their catnip at all. So we got no change in catnip. It was the same old stuff, but it was, it was a cool moment. Do you find um, do you find now that th- that was, does that feel like a different lifetime ago? Uh, I am definitely a different writer. Um, for sure. I'm a vastly different husband. I had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, uh Hey, speaking of husband, your family is adorable. I have like the winningest family ever. <laughs> family dude, ever. dude. I always say that I outkicked my coverage. Come on. Like that's, when it, that's it. And I, I'm just going to tell you that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, your family and congratulations, baby number two. Come on, man. We're cooking. We're cooking. I, I saw you guys just recently went on a baby moon as I was Instagram stalking you. Um, uh, how, how was the baby moon? How, how are you feeling um, ab- about baby number two? You're, I mean, you're still in man-to-man defense, so that's good. Yeah, I mean, but we're, we're, we're losing right now. Um, yeah, technically, we're in, we're, in, we're in zone coverage. Uh, with it being two on one with us, and man, baby girl's a lot, and she's kind of she's really smart. Like you kind of, it's hard for me to talk about how smart my little girl is without us coming across as like prideful. Mm. She is the smartest little human in the history of little humans. Like she is insanely smart, and so she is charming and sweet, and she knows how to pray now. It's it's she's a she's an amazing kid, um, and I I told my wife I'm like. I don't want to mess this up by bringing another potentially lesser human into this mix. Like we're kind of killing it right now. And uh, we, we were not trying to have a kid, um, but quarantine's a thing. And so, um, yeah, we're now having another kid and we are, I can't tell you how excited we are about it. I, all the nervousness I had on the front end, um, it's just faded away. I'm excited to see him um, hang out with a little dude. It's, it's going to be a good time. We're, we're pumped about it. That's awesome. And it, it, uh, I, I remember, so we've got three kids. My oldest is 15. My youngest is eight and I have two boys and a princess. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That no, that's real. And one of the things that I was always concerned about is like, man, I, is it possible for me to love my second child as much as I love my first? Mm. And, and I think, uh, one of the things I learned about love and from, I think from God's eyes in this whole process is, uh, as how much uh, more capacity for love 
that we have in moments like these. I'm, I'm curious what what has uh, what has Emmy taught you about God as as being kind of a younger parent? Man, so my assumption about God, I I, I, I preach a lot, so I use this analogy often. Um, the way I typically think of the gospel, the way we all typically think of the gospel, I think in Western Christianity sure. is, you know, God forgives, um, he loves us and he's waiting uh, with open arms for us to come home to him. Uh, I never realized how much you pursue as a parent. Um, like parenting is a lot less of just letting her come to me. Um, but it's it's, and it's almost, almost like the picture of, you know, Luke 15, the father running to go and meet the son. He's not just waiting. Um, there's a pursuit. And so. Um, I love that she learns. It makes me want to teach her things. You know, I love, I love that she's snuggly. It makes me want to be all up in her business. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I care significantly more about uh, the pursuit and chasing her down and letting her know how awesome she is and, and finding new ways to be creative with her and just like letting her discover things, watching her discover something and get something is like, it's like magic for me. And so, yeah, man, I, I, I didn't realize that. Oh snap. That's what God does. Like there's not just mm. one moment where, like the cross happened and praise Jesus for the cross, but the constant day-to-day pursuits of the Holy Spirit. Um, I think I took for granted how often you know, the father is making opportunities and little windows into his heart and connecting with people that show his love and his image. And yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's much more in the pursuit game than I, than I first appreciated. Yeah. I always get uh, a little weirded out when I think about like how much I love my kids right. and then the thought of sacrificing one of my kids. Nah, man. Woo. Yep. It, it's all in the feels, man. It, it, that's uh that really gets me in, um, man, just makes me appreciate God so much more. Mm, come on. Um, speaking of feelings, uh, you've got a brand new resource out. Uh, yeah, called we sang a dirge and it's, it's, it's really just an outpouring of your heart. So I, I think the most logical place to start with this dialogue is uh, if you would define dirge for us, because I don't think that that's a word that we use very often. And, and if so, um, you know, I, I, what I really want to hear is you define it from the artist's perspective. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so here's here's the fun part about that is I think that Jesus is significantly more of an artist than we give him credit for. Um, mm. The idea of we sang a dirge is literally a quote from him, Matthew 11. Uh, or he says, you know, the kingdom is like these children who are singing a happy song uh, and nobody dances. Um, and it's like these uh, these kids singing the same in the same place are singing these sad songs. And he says they sing a dirge and a dirge is just a funeral song. Um, it's a, it's it's a it's a song of mourning and lament. It's a grieving song. And the expectation is and, and the picture that Christ paints with his words. Right. He's like a this master storyteller, this master uh, craft craft of his words. He paints this picture of kids who are expecting you to react to the joy in their heart and that you don't. He mm. paints a picture of kids who are grieving. like they, They've lost somebody dear to them and they would expect that people would grieve with them. And yet. There's nothing but apathy in the eyes of those who are around these children. And so the picture that he paints is of a generation of people who have been so engulfed in apathy that the cries and the joys of children go unnoticed. And so for me, that that picture um, of Jesus describing that generation, it just felt so real and applicable to our generation that we have um, several communities, not just the black community, but I'll use my own experience. The black community has been um, crying out for a long time. Um, has been lamenting for a long time. And the expectation would be 
that because God cares about uh, his people, um, because we're all made in God's image uh, and that we have a mandate to love him with all of our heart, mind and strength, but then to love our neighbor as ourselves, that there are not just your problems, but there are problems. Um, The expectation should be that we mourn and we grieve with those who are mourning and grieving. And yet there tends to be a lot more apathy within our generation. So uh, just ripping off of Jesus's analogy, I, I wish I could say I came up with this. Um, but I thought that was a beautiful picture of our generation and then what the expectation is within Christ. Um, the, the label of or the title we sang a dirge is borrowing from Christ's illustration um, and just showing just how applicable it is. I think that the cries and the grief of the black community um, have been with an expectation for the father to hear them. And I think he has. Um, but I think it's also a cry for the church to hear um, that as we respond in love and in, and, and, and in uh, empathy, uh, we respond with the hope of the gospel that says that God is near and dear to the heart of his people, invites us to cast our cares to him because he cares for us. Um, and that when we respond with apathy, it looks much more like uh, what the world expects of us versus when we respond with with empathy and with um, compassion, it looks a lot more like Jesus. That's beautiful. And and so one of the, the questions I have around the, the Matthew 11 verse is like, I've read a, a you know, a lot of scripture and it's never led me to writing a book of poems, right? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And so I think that there are a lot of us who read scripture often and then don't get to the next place, which is this, mm-hmm. this outpouring of your heart. Yeah. I'm curious, what does it, what, what is it like for you personally to hear from God and, and how did you know that you needed to do this? Yeah. So man, I'll say, I'll start with where I started with poetry. I, as most children who were um, not behaving, I watched Eight Mile when it first came out. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. No, yeah, that's, yeah. I still yeah. watch it every time it's on television. Come on, man. I feel like, I feel like you have some B-Rabbit vibes about you. Um, oh, <laughs> no, my wife will get so mad if you encourage that because I'm ridiculous. <laughs> I can see. I, I can feel it. I can feel it. Kindred spirits. Um, so I, I used to want to be a rapper way back in the day. Um, I would go to school and I do rap battles with kids and it was so weird, but it was a thing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've always like associated with hip hop and with writing and with you know, music. And uh, when I started following Jesus, I felt like those things were at odds with each other because a lot of the narrative and the energy behind hip hop music just did not really fall mm-hmm. in line with what I understood to be true about about Christ. And then the more I got to know him, I found out that Jesus spoke with a lot of parables. Um, yeah. uh, he, I mean, and it's what we call punchlines um, in rap music. He does that. Um, a lot of metaphor, a lot of alliteration, a lot of personification. Like he, he's, he's, he's really brilliant with how he structures his stories. Um, beautiful storyteller. Uh, I kept learning more about the gospels and about scripture and diving headfirst into the book and uh, found out that over a third of the Bible is made up of poetry um, mm. and not just like the song, but the whole book of Lamentations. And uh, the there, there are whole moments in like Job where Job is like lashing out to his friends and they essentially have a rap battle with poetry where they're going back and forth with each other. Right. And so it's all in the book that whereas I thought scripture was this rule book, scripture is actually a bunch of story, meaning God wants to take me somewhere. Uh, it's a bunch of poetry and art, which means he's not trying to engage my my rationale, but engage my my imagination and my emotions. Um, and then the epistles and the letters that he gives, it's all coming in the context of relationship, people actually knowing each other. It's instruction, but it's instruction that's relational. It's, it's covenantal. And so my whole understanding about uh, the gospel has been changed as, as I've experienced Jesus and experienced God's heart 
I don't think it's just me. I think it's just how he how he works and how he's wired his word um, is there's much more humanity to be found in the text. Um, and there's much more of an invitation to to be creative and to be artistic in that. And so as I've matured in my faith and I've been following Jesus, uh, writing has just been kind of a thing that's been helpful for me. Um, I write I try to write a poem every day uh, as I journal. It's just a good practice that I kind of. I do a decent enough job of. Um, so wait, do you, question on that because I love to dive into daily disciplines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. T- take me, take. I'm gonna pin that. I want to come back to the rest of it. But when you uh, when you open up scripture in the morning, is it like uh, read a bunch of scripture and write a a poem? Is that? I mean, t- walk me through the process. Yeah, so I, I have a journal. Um, I can get it for you. Uh, I have a journal around here, and what I do is I have a note in each like day. Uh, and it asks four questions. It says, what's your fruit? What's your thorn? What's your vine? What's your bud? Uh, and it's this extended agrarian metaphor for what's your vine? How are you connected to Jesus? Um, what's your bud? What happened in this week that got you excited that you're looking forward to? Uh, what's your thorn? What hurt you? Um, and what's your fruit? What's, what's been blessing you? Uh, what's God been doing? And every single day, I try to take note of how my soul is actually doing. That whole Westland question, like how is it with your soul? Yeah. Um, and just take note of that. And so as I practice my journaling, it's just writing out what's really in my heart. And then from there, um, I'll open the word and just read. And it's, I wouldn't go as far as say it's like Lectio Divina, but it's just sitting in the scripture um, and having my heart being exposed. It's an invitation for God to expose his heart. Um, and then typically uh, I'll write a poem. That poem doesn't always, I wish I could say it always connects with either of the two first experiences. Um, sometimes it's just random stuff. Uh, sometimes it's actually taken what I've been feeling uh, throughout the day. And making that a poetic thing. Other times it's continuations of a poem. So if I'm writing a poem that's extended um, over like a week and a half or some have gone over a month, then not a full month. But if I'm writing a whole poem, I'll work on a poem that day just to keep sharp with that practice and uh, being intentional about viewing my life um, and my story in the narrative of Christ. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I wish I could say it's much more like uh, consistent, but it's simply journaling my day, read scripture, write a poem. That feels pretty consistent. That's uh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, man. So with that, like about the whole book thing, I, I was, I was, um, as everybody, I was in front of my phone for a lot of the quarantine, yeah. and, and I couldn't get away from a lot of the videos and a lot of the conversations that were surfacing, um, just with the, like the racial tension and the unrest within our culture, um, and having a lot of thoughts that I having a lot of feelings that weren't quite manifested in thoughts just yet. And so I actually, I wasn't journaling at first. I, I put my journal down during the move. Things got busy. And I picked my journal back up and I, I knew I felt more when I could actually express what I was feeling. I just didn't know what mm. it was. So it took a while to even like be able to name it. Um, but I start writing down like what it is I'm carrying. What is this thorn that I'm feeling? What is this anxiousness I'm feeling? Uh, why, am, why, why am I celebrating what I'm celebrating? And it, it, the, the passage of scripture that I I'd read was Matthew 11. Um, and Christ says, like, you know, we, we sang this dirge. And I almost read past it. Um, but it, it, I, I, I felt like, man, this is not just the generation of his day. This feels like our generation. And at the time, I was getting a lot of phone calls from a lot of white folks who were asking me about this particular issue uh, and, and were apologizing to me as if it were just my problem. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't that they were grieving too. It was like you're a black person, so obviously you are grieving this thing, which I felt really weird about, um, as if like this wasn't all of our issue. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like that that 
that passage jumped out. But I also felt like because I was already in the practice of journaling uh, around that, I just spent the next month and a half writing a whole bunch of poems that were really cathartic for me and just helpful to just get on paper. And then I shared one of those poems and a friend reached out and was like, hey, you wouldn't happen to have any more of those. And I was like, I've been writing for two months about this. <laughs> I actually do. Um, and it became a whole thing, like a project that we worked on. And now it's about to be a book. Which is incredible. And and you kind of have four different sections of the book, right? You've got leaning in, lamenting with, listening to, longing for. And I'm curious, um, I'm curious when you were putting those poems together, is that naturally how it came out? Or was it more like, uh, I'm just going to vomit everything that I'm feeling out and then I'm going to rearrange them and kind of, uh, I mean, how, how did you come to these four spaces? So I think, so because the book wasn't in mind at first, some of it was just vomit out, you know, yeah. like I, I was, I was literally just, um, like some of, some of the things you'll read in the book are, um, just raw, my expression and my feelings about a, on a specific day. Um, now obviously because I, I try to be a, a, a better technical writer than that. Uh, it goes through a process of like making it actual. actual of course. Um, right. Yeah. Art. I mean, it, yeah, it's a, it's a process. So, but like, but the, the, the whole idea of the four movements didn't come until later after I had the vomit of words and, and emotions and feeling and yuck um, there, I, I noticed that there was a lot more hope in it than I expected there to be. Um, mm. You know, um, and I think that's what biblical lament kind of invites us to is not just like lament is not whining. Um, lament is I have a hope and an expectation for God's promise to be true. And when I look around, I don't see that being the case. And I, I assume um, that God hasn't gone anywhere. So I, somewhere me or our culture has gone astray. And so the lament is grieving the fact that we are distant grieving the fact that our world does not look like what God wants it to look like and have an expectation that he's the person I should give that to. And so that wasn't just a thing I read in like the book of Lamentation, which Lamentation is actually like this beautiful four part movement of, 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 of poetry. And that ends of a, a lasting poem. That's like, it's a little different than the, the first four, but like it's an acrostic poem. That's like going through like the, the Hebrew alphabet, explaining their, their grief and explaining their lament in a powerful way. And so but, but it's also in, in the midst of its anguish, it also leans into that hope and that expectation and that line, how long, Lord, that's repeated all throughout the Old Testament. You see it as not just a uh, a whining, frustrated thing, but it's an expectation. Like, God, you're going to do something. So how long? Like, we believe in you for this. And so I'm vomiting all this stuff out. I have a lot more hope in it than I expected and hope for, like longing for it. This was the natural first thing. Like in this, in this anguish, I don't just mm -hmm. want to be frustrated. I want to clearly point people to say our goal, what we're longing for is for Christ to be head uh, and for his kingdom to come. Uh, from there, I, that anger I felt within myself of people not willing to lament with acting as if it was our problem as opposed to all of our problem. Um, lamenting with just seemed to be the natural next step. Um, and then listening to like having conversation with each other was like uh, another thing I felt like I wanted to tell my story and not let pain be the one that narrated it. Um, and so encouraging folks to listen to the fullness of like the black spectrum. Um, there's some poems in there that are just worship poems and snippets of what I think black worship looks like. Um, there I, are other I like, I like the praise break. Yeah. 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 Um, but the other poems are like, they're just more silly. Um, and they're, 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 they're a lot more lighthearted, but it's, it's all a part of the story. So I think the assumption that 
the black experience has nothing but grief is much more the narrative of the enemy than it is the narrative of Christ. Um, my story is more than just grief, um, though mm-hmm. the grief is real. And so that's just like a natural next step. And so, and then to, to kick it all off because I like alliteration, I wanted to start it off with like leaning in. So the 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 sections came later, um, and I think they were naturally kind of already there, some of them. Yeah. Um, but it, it it took some just intentionality to kind of like work that out. I look at it as liturgy. Mm. You know, like there's an intentional liturgy to it. And I, and maybe that was, you know, and, and oftentimes like we don't always start with, uh, um, you know, the sermon or the, the word or, you know, the, you know, but we put it all together in a liturgy that makes, that takes us on an emotional journey. Yes. And I feel like you did a great job with that. Um, one of the, one of the questions that I have is, is that all of this feels like one giant act of worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, so I, I'm curious, I've always believed that grieving is an act of worship yes. and lamenting is an act of worship. I'm kind of curious to see how, how that's developed in you. And, and was that always there in your Christian walk or was there somebody who like, who said, "Lo, I'm going to pull you aside and I'm going to teach you what it means to grieve with God or how does that work in your life? No, I man, I can't say that any one person pulled me aside um, and, and hammered that home. I will say so this is a long story you probably do not care about. Uh, but in college, I majored in mortuary science and embalming. I was going to be a funeral Stop director. Stop it. I'm so serious. I'm so That's awesome. Serious. You were so, knocking them dead. Yeah, I'll stop. Dad jokes. I'm can't, uh, I can't help it. You got three of them, man. You, you're entitled to a yeah. dad joke. Yeah, I, well, I'll slide them in there. Come on. Come, well, and so for me, like grief was a natural thing. Uh, my mom worked in a funeral home growing up. I was raised by just my mom. And so um, she worked several jobs uh, growing up and she worked in a funeral home. I wasn't weirded out by dead bodies and really kind of crass, I guess, but they didn't make a bad living. And so I was like, all right, I can do that. Um, And while I was in school, you learned about, you know, the five stages of grief and how people process things. And I couldn't, I I thought I was following Jesus. I started following Jesus. I'm 19 and I couldn't disassociate with all this language around grief and Matthew chapter five, verse four, where he's like, you know, come to me with all your mourning. Like, mm. like blessed are those who mourn, right? Not just it's a, it's a, a good practice. It's a blessing to mourn because the result of mourning for him is the comfort. And so that idea of grief being a process, I don't think the church reads that like Matthew five, four, as if this is a journey to come and bring your mourning, to bring your grief and your pain. I think it is. And I think the idea that that journey ends with comfort is, is observable, at least when people are, have, have lost life um, and lost loved ones. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm following Jesus and I am learning a much about death and, and grieving and processing that. And there began to be this, this realization within my own heart that, man, the places I felt like I've grown the most have been places where I've been honest and real, not the place where I've been good or have it all figured out. You know what I mean? Um, I think I'm more impressive when I have it figured out um, to other people, but even that may be a false narrative. I think with God, it's much more of an invitation to be fully who I am, um, that fully known and fully loved concept. And so, yeah, man, I think it's it's been a journey to kind of wrestle with my own grief and my own trauma. Um, But I think in those places, the places I've, I've learned to trust God the most. So one of the things that I have um, really learned in this season of COVID, and it, uh, I, I was in the Army for a number of years, reserves, and uh, I was deployed. 
And um, one of the things that has felt very familiar to me in this season of COVID is that uh, prolonged stress turns the cracks in our lives into canyons, mm. right? It really just wow. blows it. It blows it up. And, yeah. um, and you can step over a crack for a really long time, but you could die in a canyon. You can lose hope in a canyon. Uh, but God's redemptive grace is that you can explore canyons in ways that you can never explore cracks. Come on now. Come on. So, um, it, it sounds like you have a poem coming somewhere in there. Well, I, I, maybe uh, <laughs> I would settle for a book, uh, yeah. but uh, you know, we'll see what God's going to do with it. Uh, so he, here's, I bring all that to kind of, it feels to me like um, this racial tension in America is a crack that has now blown up into a Canyon. Mm. And, and I pray, I pray that the Canyon never goes back to being a crack. Cause I, I don't want to ever step over it again. Wow. And it, it felt like during the midst of COVID as, as a, as a culture, we were doing a really great job of exploring the Canyon. Mm. Right. Like we were, we were all exploring it together. Right. And, uh, and that was really good. And then all of a sudden uh, an election cycle comes and now it's like, we've just, we went to another Canyon. Yep. It, and so I guess one of the questions I have for us and not just you, but for us, how, how do we keep this Canyon in a place where we're not willing to get out of it yet? And we can yeah. continue to explore w- all the, the, the different caves in this Canyon. Yeah. Well, I, I would say shameless plug buy a book. Um, but sure. aside, from, aside from that, I think that there is, I think there has to be a place where we don't separate um, answers for grief. Mm. Like the assumption that we're, we're wrestling with a thing. You can grieve a thing, even if you have the right answer, you know, like in the process of getting healthy. So my, my wife has uh, or had cancer, um, ovarian cancer and, Praise God, you know, healing is coming that and we're, we're over there to have a kid. We're super excited about it. Um, but that was a thing, right? And while doing chemo, like while getting treatment, while getting better, while we're moving towards health, there was still grief in the middle of that process, you know, mm. still hard. I think what we assumed is, you know, as long as we're taking steps forward, there's no reason to grieve anymore. I think the moment we start to think that answers are going to eradicate grief, we expect answers and solutions and progress to do a thing that progress can't do. I think that's how we got where we are in the first place. A lot of my white brothers and sisters were saying, well, have we not made progress? Why are we still grieving some of these things? As if progress is going to take away the need for grief. I think it's through grieving and through lamenting that we keep progress going, that we keep moving forward. Um, progress in and of itself isn't the solution. And even within these conversations, the end goal is not you know, some racial utopia. The end goal is that we follow Jesus and that there's a new, there's a new heaven, you know, a new earth. Amen. Uh, yeah. That's the end goal. If, and as long as we're having discipling conversations, I can always love my neighbor better. I can always appreciate the image of God more in a person's life. Like that never stops. I don't think you graduate from loving your neighbor. That's something that we, we continually have to be sanctified towards. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think, but it, it, it can't be that we jump into a new cane and discovering those things as if the old cane is still worth exploring because we have a lot more work to do. Yeah, so you're getting ready to have baby number two. Yeah, man. Sounds like, uh, you know, it's going to be a young man. Well, dude, um, w- what are your thoughts for both of your kids? Um, but specifically for your son, uh, as it pertains to this topic, how, how how do um how do we teach the next generation about what we're going through right now? Man. 
So that's where we are as a family, just kind of wrestling and praying about. Um, and I wish I could say we had it all mapped out. I, I think we're still in the process of discovering, even within our own selves, um, what trauma has looked like. Yeah. And I had an old preacher friend who had a, had a really, really, really uh, just powerful way of explaining how he thinks about ministry. And he was like, you know, he likes to minister through his scars. Um, mm. Scars are stories of healing. They're evidence that you've kind of come through something. And he was like, you know, um, scars can tell a really good story. Ministering through your wounds is a different thing because if it's still a wound, it doesn't have any healing yet. You're probably going to do more harm to yourself than good. And your uh, perspective on. on it is probably still going to be a little damaged uh, to other people. And so I think within myself, there are some scars along racial tension that I am so excited about leading my family through. I personally am recognized that I still have some wounds um, and I don't want to minister through those. And so uh, when I was, oh gosh, 14, first only time I've ever been handcuffed before, uh, was in the cafeteria in the ninth grade. This guy named Officer Brent uh, puts me in handcuffs because I don't take um, a pizza, uh, a plate of pizza, half-eaten pizza um, to where the trade is supposed to go. What mine? I don't see why I should take it. I said no. Um, and there's a weird interaction between like, police and black people um, that I think exists in a lot of places in Mississippi in particular. It was a, it was an interesting, interesting, interesting experience. And um, I remember within myself, like this, this anger, and this, this is before following Jesus. I don't have any yeah. kind of language for what the flesh is or a carnal nature. I just know I'm angry. Um, and he like puts a, a can of mace in my face. And he's like, I'm going to like spray if you don't sit down. And this indignation, this anger rises up in me. And I'm raised in a context without a dad. Uh, I'm raised in a context where it's like uh, authority is, is already kind of a rub for me. Yeah. Um, and so that, that, that's a place where I can, I can recognize that, not to say all things stem from this, but had I had a father in my life, I think there would have been a way in which I can hear authority from a, a loving tone as opposed to authority being this absent um, power that's being like used over me. What, mm. I, what I want to do for my kids is that's a scar. I'm I have so much healing from that. Um, want to be a present uh, voice for my kids to say, hey, authority is a thing that God gives um, to be respected. Uh, it can be abused, um, but, but but there are ways in which you, you you can control yourself. As a black boy in America, I don't think you have the liberty to always lash out the way that you want to. Um, sure. and I, that experience could have been very different for me. Praise God, it wasn't. Um, but I, I, I want to be able to teach my kids how to respond in a healthy, not fear-based, but, but respect-based way. Um, so I feel that. I'm, I'm, I'm still for those conversations. I am i don't know about the place where I'm currently still fighting some wounds. Um, I, I do life in an in a all-white context as far as my church goes. Um, and I love our church. Our church is awesome. Um, yeah. We're cool. But I am still wildly frustrated with the segregation within the house of God. Um, and that's a place I don't, I'm not always nice about, um, the idea that we have white churches and black churches and we intentionally want them to be that way. That's that, that, that rubs me the wrong way. Um, so yeah, man, that's something to pray about and to, to figure out and to wrestle with. Um, I, I think it does start with those conversations within family, um, before it becomes a politicized thing. It has to be, how are we encouraging families to do life together? Like Paul's language in, uh, first Corinthians four fifteen is like I don't I don't want a thousand teachers I want fathers uh, you guys yeah. need fathers more than you need uh, a bunch of teachers and so I don't just want to be a teacher 
Um, I, I want to be uh, a present voice um, that is hopefully reflecting God's heart. Uh, great resource if you haven't checked it out yet. A uh, guy by the name of David Swanson. Okay. Uh, wrote a book called Rediscipling the White Church. Ooh. And I had him on the podcast because uh, our church is predominantly white and we really struggle with um, w- with just representing the full fullness of the kingdom of God, especially in our, in our congregation, because it's just the community itself is 98% white. And we were having this conversation and he said uh, something that has stuck with me forever. And maybe it's useful for you in, in this context, uh, as just as, at least as you're thinking and praying, um, he said, uh, segregation was intentional and uh, desegregation will have to be uh, more aggressively intentional than mm-hmm. segregation was. Yeah, man. And so I, I'm, I'm praying with you because the, 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 the distinction in the local church on Sunday morning uh, it just leaves the local church as the bride of Christ so incomplete mm. that it, it just, it really, it weighs heavy. It weighs heavy, I think, on any, um, any pastor who's put any thought into it. It should weigh heavy, I think. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Do you, um, you, you know, one of the things that, that in, in this resource that you're, or this piece of art that really you're putting out into the world is that there are no real, there's no answers in it, right? There's no, like, there's not, there's no five steps, you know, to creating a, a racial reconciliation. There's nothing like that. Yep. Um, so, so a year from now, what are we celebrating about this piece of art? Man. So I, I was, uh, I used to do student ministry, um, and I had, I would do this exercise, uh, where I had my kids kind of rewrite a Psalm, uh, mm. Psalm 23. And I was like, all right, none of you guys are shepherds. None of y'all have sheep. Uh, I want you guys to rewrite this, this poem, um, in a way that makes sense for your own context. And so they did that. It was a fun practice. Some kids, uh, the, the Lord is my construction worker and the Lord is my dentist. You know, and it, it was, it was fun. It was fun. Right. Sure. Uh, but as they as they do this practice, they're like, okay, where where is you know the the message? Like, where is the practical? This is what I do now. Hmm. Like, if, if that's how you read the Psalms, you're kind of missing the point. Uh, okay. The the Psalms aren't necessarily giving you this five step plan for how you worship God. In fact, much more what it is is either a snapshot into somebody worshiping God or a snapshot into somebody lamenting. Um, but it, it's them expressing their hearts towards the Father. Um, and even a call for all of Israel to do that or for God to heal Israel, whatever. And so for me, I think, I don't know if I have an expectation that um, this will work its way into like a book of Psalm or anything like that. Uh, my expectation, my hope would be that we have, it, it, it's very worshipfully written. Um, and so my hope is that it would at least mess with your assumptions about worship and where you worship. Um mm. There's a line in one of the songs or one of the poems that says, um, uh, no one grieves um, the, the the loss of my songs and no one grieves the loss of my people except me in heaven. And the idea is like in our spaces of worship, if I find myself in just all black spaces, it, it, it feels weird to me. Um, you know, I don't think all white folks think that way. I think they kind of just think it is how it is. Um, or, and, and so my hope is that there becomes this kind of grief of those lost in worship. Um, I think another hope I have is that if you read this book, my hope is that if you read this book, 
you will wrestle with the poems. I think we, we're in an information age where we read things really fast, try to memorize it, underline things, and try to regurgitate that information later on. Uh, my hope is that you wrestle and that you sit with it for a while, and then it forces you to do that same wrestling with somebody else. Um, I think that it's really easy to kind of lean into the echo chamber and just agree with your own opinions and have your own assumptions. Uh, the beauty about poetry is that it can be interpreted a million different ways. And so my hope is that it will force you across the table from somebody else that maybe interprets the, the book totally different than you, um, but leans towards uh, this hope, this lament, this grief, and this longing. Um, that thing is what community should look like. That worship for what, what's coming and that frustration with what is, like the, the now and the not yet of the kingdom, right? Um, so I think if, if that happens, if people are reading this thing and it's creating dialogue and it's keeping the conversation going, it's keeping us discovering what's in the cavern, I think it's a win. I love that. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot if that's okay. Go for it. Would Would you mind reciting one of your favorite uh, poems or laments from the book? Ooh, I'm totally down with that. So it would be a good one. One that probably wouldn't be too, too long. All right, I got it. Ah. So typically I have these poems memorized. Yeah. Um, but life is crazy right now. And so I don't. We're it's nobody knows the difference anyway. We're not using the video. <laughs> That's so good. I feel like I should do this all the time. Just like, just cheat with it. Let's see. Let's see. Is there a particular one you think would be more helpful to read for your nope. audience? I, I just, whatever, whatever comes to your heart. I, I'm always like, I, I wrote the book. I was talking to a friend and I was like, uh, I was like letting him hear some of the poems and everything. And he was like, where do you see yourself actually doing that poem with the N word in it? I was like, I don't know. I really hope I'm in a white church. <laughs> they let me read a poem that says the N-word. I'm not going to read that one. but you, Hey, listen, if you want to go for it, go for it. <laughs> I kind of do, but I kind of don't. Well, hey, listen, it's the nudge of the Holy Spirit, because I want you to do it too. Done. It's happening. All right. All right. Uh, where are you at? All right. So this poem, uh, should I go into the title and everything? Yeah, please. All right, so this poem is called In Words We Weren't Allowed to Say. Uh, for context, if you're wondering in the book, uh, the actual N word is like semi blanked out, so you don't have to like read it. I feel like that's like the most censored way to put it in, to put in a book. Sure. Um, all right, so N words we weren't allowed to say. Also, note that the, the context for this poem, this is it's an actual story, like it's an actual person. Um, and I'll, we can talk more about it later, but here's the poem. One. My boy Javon says, lo, that nigga Jesus is turning my life around. And I am an undone laughter, a guttural joy, unhindered by diaphragm or decorum. My heart can't help but to call beautiful what my westernized religion only knows how to perceive as blasphemy, of which is closer to the nature of Christ, I am not sure. Isn't this just what happens when the spirit touches a sinner's tongue? Confession falls from the lips quicker than political correctness can catch. Pray we hear it more often. Pray that nigga Jesus save all my niggas, both the ones that can and absolutely cannot say nigga. The latter will tell the former that words like that don't belong in the father's house. Call their vernacular contraband and miss the miracle it carries. Expect the tongue to be baptized before the body. Condemn the language of square pegs to fit their round hole comfort. Two. I mean, I get it, I guess. White folks got to take extra precaution when saying nicker and snigger. But what y'all using them words for anyway? 
I get the unfairness of it. How come we get to regurgitate our favorite rap lyrics with impunity, while white fans have to echo the genre with more skips than the scratched up CD? I understand the sensitivity. History hit a pretty hard fork in the road. Words like that remind us of an ugly past, filled with wrong turns and burned bridges, but still, perhaps the labeled ain't been as liberated as the laborers would like us to believe. Among the murderers and deserters, perhaps Christ has room at a table for potty mouths as well, and is even worthy of whatever broken praise they might bring to him on their tainted tongues three, in words we weren't allowed to say. No, never, not again. Nice day, officer. Our native tongue, not forgotten, but stripped from our mouths like a smooth mouth screw. In words we were made to feel. Numb, nervous, nasty, negative about ourselves, nooses, around necks, hung on trees, watch loved ones go up, then down, then back up again like they were capitalizing the letter, as if the black body was a proper noun, but in words that we could not own. Our names, our needs, the narrative of what this country has done to us. Neighborhoods free of violence here. I speak of both Tulsa in 1921 and Fuller Park tonight in words that we lost. Our nerves, our newborns, our nieces, our nephews, our niggas, our niggas, our niggas for. I make a poor handyman. My wife fills my toolbox with a list of numbers to contact professionals, plumbers, electricians, and other people who actually know what they're doing. I think she's a hater, but I know she's not wrong. Still, even I've stripped enough screws to recognize where the church is heading. Vacant pews and hollowed seats. Repentance is a turning motion, but we demand it in advance with grinding force. Christ has a grace for my friends that my church doesn't always know how to give. And this commitment to only presenting and accepting what is neat and polished is face valued ugly. But the underlining issue of calling black speech sinful is a hidden hideousy, old busted face. Like you got hit in the face with a sack of nickels looking boy, five. I imagine Christ is the brown boy he was. Slandered by names and accusations only he could repurpose. Hail the king of the Jews they taunt. Isn't this the carpenter's son they mock? He eats with sinners and tax collectors they scoff. And he claps back by preparing us a seat at the table he built in his kingdom. Sows seed in loose and rigid soil. Tells the harvest he has a home for it regardless of the type of dirt it was buried in. That nigga Jesus is cold, Javon says. His statement, rich in eschatological theology, a toddler faith taking its first steps towards walking in God's call for his life. He is learning to believe the promise of God is for him and I dare not call that anything but beautiful. We're gonna call this grace, my nigga. Now there's a word we can all use, white, black, or any shaded saint in between. When love meets us right where we are, Call it grace, as it is, as it's always been. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. Oh, it's so good. Uh, yeah. There's a temptation for me to want to explain that, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to talk about it at all. And I'm just going to let it sit. Well, so I think we we let it sit, but I also would love, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. If I can put you back on the spot. Hmm. I, I mean, what what I heard were what I heard were voices of uh, of men 
figuring out what to do with the culture that's not accepted by mainline Christianity, and yet they want nothing more than to be accepted by Christ. And what's the connection between the two? Mm. And how does it fit together cleanly? And it doesn't fit together cleanly. And like so many things in life, there's a natural tension in all of it. Mm. And yet at the end, what we see is a grace that's kind of surrounds both the young toddler in the faith and the the man who he's looking to for wisdom. And that grace surrounds him and just saying, there is no clean answers. There's no uh, clean path. There's lots of pain. There's lots of anguish. And yet Christ still shows up. Mm. He shows up for me. He shows up for you. And he shows up for everything in between. And even when the church doesn't show up, Christ shows up. Come on, man. It should have you like write the forward to my book or something. <laughs> I, I mean, that, I mean, honestly, that's, that's what I was. I mean, that's what I, I, I felt like I could see, uh, I could see the conversation develop in, in the poem as, um, as one person is asking another person who's developed wrestling with his own theology that's supposed to be further along than the person he's mentoring. And yet there aren't clear answers because people keep dying. Mm. Right. And like, there's just a lot of that pain and anguish. And yet you're trying to feed hope to someone who may never have had hope before. I, I, I love that line that, that the toddler first step in eschatology and, and like, it was just like, ah, like it's good. It's so good, man. Come on, dude. I, I think that, I think that the, so I was playing basketball a couple of days ago. Um, last week, my cousin came down and we went to go play ball on these courts and, COVID's so weird, right? Like you have to like social distance yourself and you see people playing on the other side of the court and you're playing on your side of the court and these dudes just walk up and they want to hoop. And I'm like, ah, I don't know if we're supposed to like touch the same ball or whatever, but, but I also haven't seen people in a long time. So we played basketball. Right. Of course you did. <laughs> we like Lysol down later. Right. Um, so we're playing basketball with these guys and um, they're both Hispanic from Miami. One had lived here a little longer than the other one. And this is like fresh off the election. And you could tell they wanted to they wanted to bring it up, uh, mm. but they didn't know how. Um, and so we're just we're just playing ball. And somehow it comes up that they're there from Miami. And um, one of the guys that was there uh, was you know, talking to his grandparents about, you know, the election, and everything like that. And we start this conversation and I, I bring up I, I almost intentionally try to bring up the fact that I work at a church. Um, after I start hanging out with people. And so, cause their assumption is like, oh, I can bring all these conversations to you and we have all this stuff. And then the moment I say I work for a church, they're like, wait, am I allowed to still talk about this stuff with you? Cause sure. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm much more candid until I know you work for a church. Uh, and, and that feeling of the church not being a safe place for folks to be who they fully are says a lot more about the church than it does the culture. Amen. You know what I mean? Like, yep. like we, if, if we've gotten to a place where we expect folks, one of my favorite lines in that poem is we expect the tongue to be baptized before the body. Like we expect the language to be already perfect and already manicured and already fit within our rationale before we even explain to them Jesus. You know what mm. I mean? Um, I, I think we have some things backwards that I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping if nothing else, um, we, 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 begin, we begin to long for the lost more than we long for correctness you know what i mean yeah yeah uh no that's i i agree 100 and 
I, I think that one of the things that we forget about all the time is that the church exists for those that aren't here. Mm. Right. And so okay. like when we think about, when we think about, um, I, and I, and I'm not saying that we have to give in to culture, right? Like I'm not saying that, uh, that in any circumstance that we have to give into culture, but, um, but honestly, the best ministry that we should do should be in culture, right? And it should be there, right? That's where we're loving and accepting. And that's where we're all the things. And, and you know, I, we talked about it before recording. Disciple making is my like passion, right? And mm-hmm. we would say that you have to walk alongside someone where they're at in their journey of faith and Absolutely. be rooted in scripture and it must be multiplied. And so then uh, that means that you don't get to choose where you want them to be when you pick them up along the side of the road. Mm, come on now. So I know Well, I mean, I, yeah, you could get me going on this topic forever, but I, I love, uh, I love your heart for that man. And I, I love this piece of writing and, um, you, you've got an incredible spirit. That's a gift to the kingdom. So, so thank you for that. Dude. Thank you. I, I was telling somebody the other day, like, uh, I, I was on another podcast cause apparently that's what you do when you write a book. Um, this, this white lady uh, named Heidi, and she was like, thank you so much for this. And thank you for writing this book and everything. I was like, you don't know how good it is to have this conversation with a white person. <laughs> um, like, <laughs> it's really a thank you. Because um, I, I, I've been carrying it for a while. Uh, one of the lines in the poem is uh, I, I, was, I was talking about how uh, the rally was seasoned with as much pepper as it was salt this time. Like, mm. there's, a lot, there's a lot more folks a part of the conversation that's go around. And I'm so happy to see it. Like, um, but and, and as... As long as these conversations are rooted in discipleship, I am so for them. Like if we're talking about how, you know, we love our neighbors and how we uh, respect and appreciate the image of God. Like that's a discipleship conversation. I'm so about it. Just conversations about like race and ethnicity. I think they're worth having. Um, They don't get me out of the bed in the morning, though. You know, like ultimately this has to be at least for us as we follow Jesus. This has to be how am I following Jesus? as it pertains to this new invention of race. Like race isn't a thing in scripture. Ethnicity is not a thing in scripture. And it's this new concept that we have to figure out, okay, this thing doesn't take away from the witness of Christ. How do I witness, bear the witness of Christ in the midst of this new thing? And so, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that it's not just a couple conversations about, you know, how we teach white folks the electric slide and uh, any weird ethnic conversations like that. Like I'm, I'm much more focused on and much more excited about having these conversations within folks who follow Jesus. Like, yeah, thank you. Uh, so I know my, my listeners are going to want to get more of you. Where's the best place on the interwebs to, to connect with you and where can they pick up a copy of the book? Yeah. And, uh, what's all that look like? I'm a pretty simple dude. Uh, my name is low, just L O it's kind of easy. Um, you can find me on anything at low, the poet, um, on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, I, I'm going to get cool enough for a Twitter one day. And so maybe it's Twitter not, one day. It's not worth it. <laughs> I hear that's where we have to go and bring hope because that's not where it's at. It's a, um, I always say that Twitter is like a giant cocktail party. Mm, I don't like and that. yeah. And, and, and most of the people there feel drunk to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Don't find me. I mean, I'm on it. I mean, full disclosure, right? I'm on it. But like, Sometimes it's just like, 
why am I on it? So I don't know. But anyway, so, uh, okay. Last question. Uh, oh, where can they pick up a copy of the book? Yeah. yeah. So, um, all those places up on my stuff, there's a link to it. It's like the first thing you'll see, but also if you just Google, we sang a dirge, uh, book, you'll find it on the Amazons. You'll find it on the Google. Um, it's all over the place. As far as like, we sang a dirge, uh, book, Google that. And, uh, you should see my face. Probably not my face. You'll probably see the book. The book cover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last question I always love to ask people. It's an advice question, mm. right? And I want you to give yourself a piece of advice, but I'd like to take you back to a very specific moment. Okay. Okay. So um, you're getting ready to walk down the aisle oh, before your viral wedding, right? Um, and there's this young man who's getting ready to start this new life with the, the his best friend and the, the woman of his dreams. Yeah. who's about to embark on a journey that's full of poems and songs where uh, oftentimes you're going to be asked to speak um, to, to things that may feel way bigger than you are. If you're going to go back and, and, and talk to that young, younger version of low, uh, what's the one piece of advice you would give them? See, that always that trips me up. The one piece of advice. That's not, that's, that's not fair. Can I give him three? Sure. All right. Uh, first thing I would tell him is that this is about to be a viral moment. So ditch the yellow microphone, get a regular looking microphone. Uh, mm, that's just good practical advice. Mm-hmm. Second thing I tell him is this is about to go viral. So maybe capitalize on this, start a YouTube page, um, get people like <laughs> somewhere, um, maybe monetize the video. I don't know. Something- I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it would have been, that would have been nice. Those that would have been nice. 20 million views ago. Mm, could have been really helpful. Mm, could have praised been? the Lord. Um, on, on some Jesus stuff, though, I would say uh, really appreciate this community that you're a part of. So mm-hmm. at the time that we got married, we were a part of a church in um, Oxford, Mississippi. And it was the, the only place I've ever been that was like this. Our our definition of discipleship was not the typical church model. It wasn't all the young folks go here, singles go here, old folks here. Um, they heavily believed in intergenerational ministry. And we benefited so much from our first two years of marriage, just being around folks who had been married before, who already had kids. Some folks were, we we were, we were 23 and four and there were college kids in our group. There were teenagers in our group. There was Mm. a year old couple in our group. Uh, There was a 55 year old widow in our group. Like, like the makeup was just so blended. And I have, I think I took that for granted. I assume this is what, what it was like in every church. Uh, and I'm longing to create that within our community now. Most of the folks in my church like the idea of, you know, we're empty nesters. We only want to be with empty nesters. Or, you know, we're in college. We only want to be with folks who are in college. Or like, sure. we, like we we like homogeny a lot. Um, and I, I I long for a season of life that looked like that one. And so I would just tell my, my younger self, um, enjoy this, learn this, multiply this um, as fast as you can. Because that's I think that's where life happens. Um when, when, when in the middle of, you know, different walks of life, um, not even just racially, but like generationally, like different walks of life. Yeah. Um, it looks more like the kingdom. And so, yeah. Lo, I really do appreciate all your generosity today. You were awesome. Reverend Bishop, Pastor Tony, I appreciate you as well, bro. <laughs> oh, don't go throwing the words like round like that. No, nobody wants any part of that. <laughs> don't you just love Lo's spirit and the way that he connects? I just... I I deeply appreciate processing feelings in poetry. And I think that he is one of those guys that 
um, we're going to want to watch for a really long time because he has a voice that I need to hear and, and you probably need to hear too. So, Lo, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast. Thank you all for listening. Do me a favor. Go and follow Lo on the socials. Check him out. Pick up his new book, We Sang a Dirge, uh, wherever you buy books, and, uh, and support the ministry that he's doing. As always, the biggest compliment that you can give us is to share this podcast with a friend. Leave a rating or review wherever you listen. I appreciate it so much and look forward to connecting with you guys real soon.